Okay, so as a church, we're going through the book of Samuel. We're doing a series on the book of Samuel. And last week was chapters 7 and 8. Last week we went through 7 and 8. I read the story, talked about the meaning of it. And so this week, the question that Pastor Brian and I discussed was whether it makes more sense to continue on into chapters 9, 10, and 11, or whether it makes more sense to stay in chapters 7 and 8. And this is kind of a part 2 to that sermon. Uh, And then next week when he comes back, he'll move on into 9, 10, and 11. And that's what we decided, that it makes more sense to make this sermon a part 2 to last week. And this may be extra information, but I'm going to show you why we think this makes more sense using my spiritual gift of clip art. So the book of Samuel in your Bibles is broken up into first and second Samuel. It's two books, but in reality, it's one big story called Samuel. The book of Samuel is one big story, but look at this. It's broken into four clear movements. So if it were a play, there would be four acts. And the first act is all about Samuel and it's the first eight chapters. It's short And then the second act is much longer. That has to do with King Saul. The third act is much longer. It has to do with King David. And the fourth is kind of a short epilogue tying the story together. And as you see, the first and fourth act kind of parallel one another. And the second and third kind of parallel one another. I captured all of that with cartoons. There you go. See, so it's four acts long. First and fourth, it's a chiastic structure to the narrative. But the point is, last week we covered chapters 7 and 8. So we ended uh, movement 1 in the story and the drama of Samuel. And it makes more sense for me to really uh, explicate this passage, kind of explain some of the implications of what we studied, so that next week when Pastor Brian comes, he'll move us into chapter 2. Or a play... Once you're done with chapter 8, the curtain would fall and you would get popcorn and go to the bathroom and stuff. And then the curtain would rise and Pastor Brian is going to deal with Act 2. Okay? So that's what we're thinking. I am going to lean kind of heavily on the sermon from last week. It's like Lord of the Rings. You've got to read them in order. Otherwise, you don't know what the hobbits are doing. I'm going to lean a little heavily on my sermon from last week. But I'm going to recap it for you. So I'm not going to reread the chapter because it's a long chapter. And I want to read a different Bible chapter this morning. But here's the story. The story in 1 Samuel 7 and 8 in the epic novel of Samuel. The story is that the Israelites get the glory of God back. Yahweh is dwelling with his people again in the land. The triune God is dwelling with his people in the land flowing with milk and honey. And they say, we are going to be dedicated to God. We're going to offer sacrifices and we're going to follow Samuel. And they do a water thing. They're all for God. But then they say, after a while, they go, actually, never mind. This doesn't make any sense to have God as a king. We can't even see God. We want a human king to be like the nations. And God says, okay, you want a human king? You can have a human king. Curtain falls, end of scene one, end of act one. That's the story. They say, we're dedicated to God. Never mind. This doesn't make any sense. God says, fine, you want a king? You can have one. And he's going to show up. He's evil, according to the cartoon. And uh, he's going to show up next week. But that's the story of First and Second Samuel, or of First Samuel 7 and 8. And the big point we got out of the text, I'm not going to rehearse all of the steps we took, but the big point we got out of the text, remember, is that there are two ways of living painted in the Bible. The Bible is not just a collection of random stories that you say we should emulate this character and this character has traits we should discourage. That's kind of a VeggieTales-ish devotional way of reading the Bible. This story has good things I should do and bad things I shouldn't do. And that's fine to read the Bible. That's not sinful. I love Silly Songs with Larry. Hilarious. But I wanted to show us that the Bible is doing a bigger thing. It's painting pictures of two ways of being human. 
the, the theology term, we can all get a good theology vocabulary word this morning. It's locative realms. There's two realms, there's two modes of subsisting as a human before God. And the one we looked at last week is this mode of human dedication where human effort is the means by which you produce human flourishing. And we saw that that in story after story, remember I went through all of those stories where that way of being human always bends towards idolatry and leads to death. Because according to the Bible, the problem with humanity, the soul deep problem with us, every religion knows we have a problem. Atheists even know we have a problem. According to the Bible, the problem with humanity, it's not sociological, it's not anthropological, it's not economic or psychological. There are those problems in the world. But according to the Bible, the problem is the human will. It's the wanter. Your wanter is always bending towards idolatry. And saying, never mind, I don't want God to be God, I'll be God, which is what they did in the story. So that's what we looked at last week, how that whole way of trying to do life always leads to death. Then I touched on quickly what we're going to expand and expound this morning, which is the other way of being human. The other, it's not just a list of these are the things you should do, it's a different locative realm, it's a different way of subsisting, which is the life of faith we looked at. Okay, and life of faith is not an epithet. Life of faith is not a bumper sticker. It's not a, it's not a phrase that you throw around. Living the life of faith, that's a biblical category. It's a way of thinking about how you walk through life. Okay, so that's what we got up to last week. That was rehearsing the sermon. Two ways of living. This one always leads to idolatry. The other way to live is the life of faith. We're all with me? You all uh, shaking your heads? I need to make sure you're with me. Okay, do we need more coffee? How are we got? We got the two ways of life. So this morning, we're going to look at the life of faith alternative to the first Samuel 7 and 8. And then, uh, I'm not going to read the David story, but the seed is kind of planted. Because remember, Samuel is one big book, according to our clip art chart. And it starts here, the life of faith idea. And then it picks up in this guy, King David. So it's, it's a theme that's woven throughout the book of Samuel. It's this life of faith. So what we're going to do this morning, our plan for this morning is to read the chapter in the New Testament about the life of faith and uh, get, get the definition. What is that concept? We're going to concretely define the concept of the life of faith. That's point one. And then we're going to really see how that permeates into our lives. It's not going to be an ethereal concept, life of faith. I, would, I just hate when theology doesn't affect our lives. So part two is I want to see how theology affects the way you live in the next 24 hours of your human life. Okay? So that's our strategy. Read the chapter about life of faith. Part two is see how it gets into our life. Okay? We're all ready to go? Out loud, we're all ready to go? Thank you. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 11. That's the, that's the New Testament text on the life of faith. Now Hebrews, just to remind you what Hebrews 11 is, if you haven't read the text, Hebrews is actually a sermon transcript that the apostles preached. So in, in the first century church, the apostles preached sermons, and the book of Hebrews is an inspired transcript of one of their sermons. I would say it's Matthew or James. Some people think it's Luke or Paul. It doesn't matter. It's an apostle who preached in the Jerusalem church this sermon, and he's doing the same thing. I'm really borrowing his material. It's a sermon about pointing out the two ways to live, and he's arguing for the life of faith. That's what Hebrews is about. 
And, and chapter 11 is when he kind of gets to his climax defining and explaining what this thing is. So that's what I'm reading. I'm just stealing, his, I'm stealing another uh, preacher's material. But it's an apostle, so it's okay. And while I'm reading it, you can imagine yourself as a first century Jew sitting in, sitting in church in Israel, listening to this sermon be preached by Matthew or James or whoever. Okay? So now I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a long chapter, but guess what? This is church, so you're allowed to read a long chapter of the Bible because we're in church. Okay. <laughs> chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, the word of God. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. So that's interesting. The, in our minds, the whole Bible is ancient history. But this is the apostle speaking to his church, and he goes, we're contemporary people. The Old Testament is ancient history. By, you know, first century Jews, the Old Testament, the people of old, they received commendation by faith. So he's, he's encouraging his congregation to live that way. Verse 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more... Uh, acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So he starts with creation, then he moves to Cain and Abel. He's moving through the Old Testament story, talking about this theme of the life of faith, uh, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through this faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up. So creation, Cain and Abel, Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah. So he's moving through the story. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, so he's moving through the story, obeyed when he was called to go out of the place that he was to receive, out to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So that's the first place we see this other idea that I'm going to be kind of pointing out through the chapter, that faith causes this priority shift. He would rather live with God than have a home. It's a priority shift. I'll keep pointing that out. For he was looking forward, uh, verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah, so he's moving through the story, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand in the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it plain that they are seeking a homeland. So it's all of these people by faith had a priority shift. They consider walking with God a higher priority than having a house. 
They had been thinking of that land from, uh, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, priority shift. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, so he's repeating the Abraham story, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who has And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac, so he's moving on with the story. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Priority shift. They would rather follow God than be afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, choosing rather this new priority than the old priority. Verse 26, for he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and treasures of Egypt, For he was looking forward to a reward. Same priority thing. The reproach of Christ is greater than the wealth and treasures of Egypt. Verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he uh, endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea on the dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me. So preachers have always been doing that. I'm running out of time. I have more stuff to say. That's what the apostle said in a real sermon. <laughs> what more shall I say? For, for time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Priority shift. Uh, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through faith and uh, through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So he ends that whole litany of references by saying, and their story isn't done because if you are in Christ, you're part of that same story, church. So that's the apostle exhorting his congregation. Okay, so that's the church. That's the, or that's the passage. That's the chapter about the life of faith in the New Testament. So what I want to do with this text is one uh, big thing. This text is clearly bursting and bulging with lots of ways we could go. But I want to do one thing, which is define clearly the concept of the life of faith. 
It's funny how Christians are capable, not just Christians, but anyone is capable of using a word a lot and kind of thinking that you understand the concept, but not having a real clear, saliently understand, crystallized definition of it in your mind. The word faith, the concept faith, needs to be clearly defined in our brains. So that's the one thing I want to do with this text, okay? We're going to get the concept of faith defined. And there's two, there's a push and pull thing that faith is going on. You're going to see it. It's going to be really clear once I point it out. The first thing that faith is in verse 11, I'm going to, I'm going to walk you up to this. I'm going to show you. The, the first thing that faith is, chapter 11, verse 3, it does involve belief. It involves believing the right things with your brain. By faith, we understand something. Verse 6, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Faith does involve cognitive assent. It involves your brain asserting a truth that's out there. But here's the thing you need to see. Faith is not only about your brain responding to truth. It's about your soul. It's an existential thing. Your living human soul passively receiving that truth you believe. Okay? So, so let me show you. Verse 3 By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That truth out there, the universe was created by the word of God, is your relation to that statement through faith affecting that claim at all? By faith, we understand that God created the universe by the word of his power. Are you you doing something to that claim by believing it? Or is faith rather the passive posture by which you receive that truth? Okay, I'm building up to a big point. You have to see in verse 3, though, that faith is a passive thing. You're, you're not affecting something with your faith. You're receiving the truth that God created the universe. Okay, then verse 6, By faith, uh, For without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Again, is this axiom, this statement, God exists, ah, say, in himself, is your faith doing something to that statement? Is your faith affecting that at all? Or by saying, I believe God exists, are you receiving that truth? You see, it's a passive act of the soul. So now here we go. Here we get to the point. In verse 6b, the end of, this, uh, end of verse 6, and believe that he rewards those who seek him. When you get to the gospel, the gospel is that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you deserve to die. That truth out there that Jesus is your substitute, when you come to that by faith, are you affecting the gospel? Are you doing something? Are you paying God your faith so that he gives you righteousness? Or are you receiving the truth of the gospel? This seems like I'm splitting hairs, but it's really important. Faith in the gospel is not something you are paying God. You're not working hard on your belief and giving him your belief so he gives you grace. Faith is not a work. And if you've been raised in a Protestant church, and especially a Calvinistic Protestant church, which I hope you have, that makes no sense. Of course faith isn't a work. You, why would you even have to say that? There are, there are forms of Christianity that would say faith is a work. You do something for God by giving him your faith. You, it can turn faith into a work. I'm trying to show you from the text that faith is a passive thing. It's like receiving a Christmas gift. You don't work hard at receiving the gift and then it's given to you. You just accept it. That's how we need to think of what faith is. You're just accepting the truth that God exists and you're accepting the truth that Jesus lived for you and died for you. You're not doing a thing for God by believing in him so that he gives you grace. Now, this is... 
This is like a Protestant theology point I'm trying to make. I'm trying to like prove to us from the Bible what faith is. But this is not just theology, saints. Church, beloved, you need to get this truth that your relationship with God is a passive, it depends on you being passive, or your soul will get eaten up. If you believe that your rightness with God depends on you doing something, even if the thing you have to do is belief, you won't do it. You will always think you're falling short. You will never do enough, even if the only thing you think you have to do is faith enough. The only way to have true rest in the gospel, this is not a theology point, it is, but it's also a pastoral point. The only way to rest in God is to passively understand that the way you are right with him is by receiving the gift like a Christmas present. You just accept the gospel. Faith is a passive thing. This week, uh, I assume by the providence of God, I was, I was listening to a podcast and this very topic came up. It was an episode where a rabbi was speaking with a Christian theologian. And they were talking about the gospel and Jesus and the Bible. And the rabbi said, uh, well, Christians believe in works too. You know, we believe you have to keep the Torah, but Christians believe in belief, that you have to do the work of belief. Uh, he was making, it was this same week. I was already preparing this point and the, the rabbi said this thing and the Christian theologian did very well. He responded appropriately. He said, no. Christians teach that faith is a passive act by which you receive the gospel. And he he quoted the right verses and he went to Hebrews 11. But the point is that in your brain, you need to understand not just for your own sake, but also so you can explain the gospel to other people that faith is a passive thing. Now, I said there's a push and pull element in this text. Faith is the passive act by which you receive the gospel. My hand motions are really important right now. You are receiving the gospel, but faith then causes you to act. 25 times in this chapter, it says, by faith or through faith, so-and-so did something. Okay, so if you're reading the Bible, you're at home, you're reading through the Bible, you get to chapter 11, you should notice that that phrase comes up all over the place. By faith, so-and-so did something. You could mark it, you could circle it, however, however you do Bible reading. And you would see that 25 times faith causes an action. By faith, they did something with 17 people. 17 people are named doing 25 actions by faith. And 10 of those actions are the thing you do is have a priority shift. So by faith, I consider walking with God more important than having a homeland. By faith, I consider being with the people of God more valuable than the treasures and riches of Egypt. By faith, I consider walking with God more important than X, Y, Z. So, so if you're reading the Bible, I think part of a sermon, I'm not just supposed to like teach you what the Bible says, but how to read the Bible too. This is important. When you're reading the Bible, you mark the things that are repeated. That's how you get the point. The thing that is repeated is that by faith, 25 times, 17 people do something, and 10 of the times, the thing they do is have a priority shift so that they're living in a new way. Okay? So you gotta, you got to see the two things faith is doing. It's a passive, look at the hands. It's a passive reception of the gospel causing action. There's a theologian who explains this very well. His name is... John Calvin, this is in his book, In the Institutes, book three. He's talking about the same thing. I'm just stealing content. It's the two ways of life, way of human dedication, life of faith. And he's explaining this faith. He's defining faith and he's quoting Augustine. So this is secretly an Augustine quote 
hidden cleverly in a Calvin quote. It's like theologyception. This is an amazing moment. Everyone take it in. Okay? <laughs> okay. Calvin says that Augustine has spoken finally when he teaches that faith shows us not only our goal, but our path. Faith not only secures our destination, but our way to it. Do you get this? Faith is the way you are saved. You are declared righteous when you, are, when you have the passive act of faith. But faith then is the way you walk to salvation. I'm not saying you get in by faith, stay in by works. That would be quite a new perspective, and I don't hold that. You are saved by faith, and you stay in by faith. But faith is, it shows you what you're saved to, and then it shows you how to walk there. Here's another, just a little bit later in the same chapter. He says, in faith, we attain peace. You get peace with God the minute you have faith. But faith then is the way you walk in peace. You attain peace and walk in peace by faith. As Protestants, it may be really easy to get the first part. We hear week in and week out from Pastor Brian's faithful preaching that the gospel is grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. Amen. That's the gospel I would die for. But sometimes we forget that faith then is the thing that causes the priority shift and you live in a new way. Okay? You get the point of the text? Put it out. I've got it out of the text. So I said the plan was to one... Read the chapter about the life of faith and define faith. So now, if you're ever on a podcast with a rabbi, you should be able to define faith. It's a passive thing causing a change in your life. And you can go to Hebrews chapter 11 and quote Calvin. There you go. Okay? Now, we have a little bit of time left. Time is failing me, says the apostle. Time is failing me. I want to talk about, uh, in just a little bit left, how this concept of the life of faith filters into your life. Kevin Van Hooser says that, faith, or that theology is defined as living to God and faith that doesn't change, or theology that doesn't change your life is idolatry. If you don't get these concepts into your life, it's idolatry. We need to see how the Bible affects our next 24 hours, okay? So, the way to talk about the life of faith is not to come up with a list of rules. The person living by faith does X, Y, and Z. That's falling into last week, the whole thing we talked about last week of the other way of life. The way to look at the, way of life, the life of faith isn't a list of rules. It's a person. Jesus living is the man of faith. He came to be our savior, yes, and our example. He's our savior and our, sancti and our sanctifier. He's our expiator and our example. You just look at Jesus. Look at the man. Look at him live. Look at him walk around. Meditate on the Gospels. Spend time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for the rest of your life looking at him because he shows you how to live by faith and the principles of how this man lived ought to filter into your situation. So that's my, the vision for Valleybrook is not that we are are people who read the gospel so we get great theology. I guess that's important. But it's that we're people who are continually meditating on the gospels. So just looking at Jesus. And when you spend enough time looking at him, then in your life you understand how to live by faith. Living by faith is like following a person, not a set of rules. Okay? So I want to do this shotgun splatter style. Just look at Jesus stories. Look at how Jesus lived a little bit. Get some principles. And uh, apply it to our lives. But I, I'm only doing four ex Jesus stories. I'm not like reading the stories. I'm just saying, look at these Jesus examples. The hardest part of the sermon was limiting it to four. 
I wanted to dollop in a whole scoop of Jesus stories. We could do this all day. I would love to do this all day. Look at him, and we can talk about how that affects us. But I'm just going to do four quick Jesus stories, okay? And this is the man of faith. So, one, living the life of faith means, there's a fly in front of the screen. Living the life of faith is going to make you pure. Jesus goes out in the beginning of his ministry into the desert. You know the story, Matthew 4. He's led out into the desert where he's tempted by Satan. But by faith, just like the characters in the story, he emphasizes walking with God is more important than secret sin. The person walking by faith, even when you're by yourself, even when you're alone, even when you're in the wilderness and no one's around, is going to maintain a walk with God rather than give in to secret sin. If you have a part of your life in the desert where you are by yourself consistently enslaved to sin, how can you claim that you're walking by faith? The man of faith is pure all the time. Do you see how this works? You just point to a Jesus story, see how he lives to get the principle. If you're living in bondage to a secret sin and our secret sins are all the same, There is no temptation that has come upon you that is not uncommon among man, says Paul. It's all the same, money, sex, power, alcohol. And they're they're very guessable sins. But if there is a part of your life where you're enslaved to this, you you can't claim that you're genuinely walking like the man of faith. Tim Keller says, people with secret sins are like people who drill a hole in the bottom of their spiritual bucket. Every time you try to pour in water, it just comes out. The first step of being a person living by faith is that you are going to shed. I'm not teaching perfectionism. I'm just saying you are going to shed your addictions to things of the world. There's no part of you that you are going to let the world hang on to and keep as yours. It's going to shed if you're really living like this. You see how this works? You look at him. He's the pattern. He is pure even when he's by himself. And that will filter into your life. Here's another Jesus story. Jesus is spiritual. Maybe the most redundant statement ever said, Jesus was spiritual. But here's what I mean. Remember the story? So John 11, it's just another Jesus story. Remember in John 11, Jesus is sitting around with his apostles and disciples and Mary and Martha are there. And they're talking, they're, they're just talking about the Bible. Jesus is teaching. They're talking about spiritual things. And what is, and Martha gets uh, very antsy about we need to make a meal. It's, it's like almost a funny story. And Jesus says, Martha, You are anxious about many things, but one thing is necessary. And he redirects them to talking about spiritual things and listening to his teaching. The man of faith, Jesus, clearly cares about the physical world. He cares about clothing people. He cares cares about feeding people. But the one thing that that is always on the heart of this man of faith is discussing spiritual things. We all know Christians who claim to be walking by faith but, and they're very excited about their thing, uh, pop culture. But the minute you start talking about the Gospels, they have nothing to say. They're very excited about their sports team. But the minute you start talking about the Psalms, they have nothing to say. They're very excited about their candidate. And they can give you all the arguments back and forth for their guy or girl. But the minute you start talking about Isaiah, they have nothing to say. I'm not saying these things are sinful in themselves, obviously. I care about pop culture and sports and politics. I watch the Bears all season. But, but there's a deeper care for spiritual things that you see in the life of Jesus. If you are always excited about this, but can't get any excitement about the word of God, how can you claim that you're living like the man of faith? Do you see how this works? If you get bored every time we open the Bible, but you're excited to talk about your guy, You're not walking by faith. 
Okay, here's the third one. Peaceable. Jesus is clearly peaceable. Now, here's my example of Jesus being peaceable. Look at this. How are we on time? Oh, I'm so good on time. We could have done like six more Jesus stories. Okay. Uh, Jesus is peaceable. Here's my example of Jesus being peaceable. Jesus cleansing the temple in Matthew 21. Here's why I do that. Because angry people often say, look, Jesus got angry. And it, there is a time for justified, righteous anger in the Bible. But here's, here's what you need to see. Right before Jesus cleansed the temple, what was he doing? He was outside of Jerusalem with the sick and the lepers. And it's heavily suggested that the mentally retarded were there. He was touching them and he was talking with them. He was kind to them. The most marginalized, most vulnerable people in society felt safe around Jesus. They came up to him and he spends time with them. He's dove-like. He's peaceable around them. He goes into Jerusalem and he has a justified reason to be angry. He flips the tables and says, this is not how to worship God. Then what happens right after he flips the tables? He's in the temple and they come up to him again. The sick and the lame and the sex workers and the homeless feel safe around Jesus. They just saw him flip the tables and they still feel safe around him. He is such a kind, gentle person. His whole temper is so forgiving and quiet and meek that even in his act of anger on both sides of it, people feel safe around him. This is a quote from Jonathan Edwards. I try to memorize the quotes, but I couldn't memorize this one. This is actually the title of a chapter in one of his books. Uh, He has a book called Religious Affections, and this is a chapter title. (laughs) Truly gracious affections differ from those affections that are false and delusive, meaning a a person living by faith, a true sign of this person. What is is the person living by faith going to look like? A true sign is that they tend to and are attended with the lamb-like, dove-like spirit and temper of Jesus Christ. Or in other words, They naturally beget and promote such a spirit of love, meekness, quietness, forgiveness, and mercy as appears in Christ. This man was kind and meek, dove-like and gentle. Yes, there are times for justified anger. He clearly had a stern, uh, he was capable of being stern. But if, if this doesn't, if this peaceableness doesn't show up in your heart, in your character at all, you can't be walking by faith. Doug Wilson Uh, says that I am tired of angry evangelical men. And the the article is towards men and women. But there are lots of Christians who who claim to be walking by faith, but they don't exhibit this at all. At home, they're quick-tempered and quick to debate and quick to fight. If the the lovely, lamb-like, gentle temper of Jesus doesn't filter into your life, you can't honestly tell me that you're walking by faith. Okay, last one. Last Jesus story. Maybe we will end on time. I did this just right. Okay. Last Jesus story. He's content. Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Mark 14, remember the story. He's about to go to the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what's going to happen to him. The cat of nine tails, the cross, the wrath of God. And he says, Father, if there is any way to take this cup from me, do it. But even so, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus, in the midst of circumstances which he hates, is content to walk with the Father. The man of faith walks by faith in moments that are impossible to walk through. 
It's, you are allowed to say, I wish circumstances were different. There is a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. I hate how this is. Father, take this away from me. You are allowed to cry that. But in the midst of saying, this is hard, the man of faith is content in saying, I am resting in my continual walk with God as we go through the circumstances that I hate. That's what it looks like to be around Jesus. And I'm not, uh, I'm not using this final example as like, just an emotional thing. I'm trying to show you how deeply practical this is for your next 24 hours. When you get a call that your brother and your best friend has been hit by a truck, in that moment, Josh was hurt this, this summer, in that moment, you can say, this is horrible. I wish things weren't this way. I'm driving to the hospital in my sweaty shirt and bike shorts, and I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to my brother, but in that moment, either you say, I am content to walk with God, through this situation because this is what the life of faith looks like. And you're looking to the Garden of Gethsemane. You're seeing, jo- you're seeing Jesus. You're seeing Jesus live the life of faith. Or in that moment, you say, I can't be happy until things are the way they're supposed to be. Until things are the way I want them, I'm not going to be happy. This is, saints, living the life of faith matters in- incredibly for the next section of your life. Either you are a pure person or not. Either you are a spiritual person or not, peaceable or not, you're content or not. This matters as you walk out of church. The life of faith affects how you deal with ER sitting, sitting in the patient room at the ER. Okay. That's the whole two-part series on the life of faith. There's two ways of being human. One is dedication leading to idolatry and death. The other is the life of faith leading to the glory of God. I pray, Valley Brook, that we are people who live the life of faith, which doesn't mean rule following. It means looking at a person. Let's be people who, for the rest of our lives, look at this person to learn how to live. And that's only possible because he shed his blood for us, which we are going to remember at the Lord's Supper. The worship team can come on up. and We'll get ready for communion, and I'll end us in prayer. Father, thank you for the gift of your gospel. You have saved us and given us new life. But not only have you given us new life, you have shown us how to live. Faith not only secures our peace, but it helps us walk in peace. And I pray that we as a church are people who emulate Jesus, that we walk through life as Christians, as little Christs, following not a set of rules, but a person who was pure and spiritual and peaceable and content. This is what I pray for our Church, and this is what I know you will answer because you have bought these promises with your precious blood. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.